Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome, my audience from around the world. Uh, this is indeed Elaine miller Karras, and you have come to Resiliency Within. As we start the show today, I want to extend my heartfelt prayers to all those around the globe suffering and grieving as a result of violence, climate events, and war. I am an Angelino, a resident of Los Angeles County, California, and my heart is with the residents of Monterey Park today as we start, who were victimized by the latest mass shooting in the U.S., and it just happens that today our topic is called the resilient activist promoting mental health, which is essential. And we're going to be talking about how that relates to the climate and um, the emotional distress that can come around in what's called environmental devastation. But the things we talk about are also very relevant to any of the, the sufferings and windstorms that people experience around the globe. I want to welcome my guest today, Sammy Aaron, the founder of the nonprofit, The Resilient Activist. She'll discuss how people everywhere are experiencing severe emotional distress caused by climate change and environmental devastation. And what makes it even um, more unbearable for some, um, she says, is when family, friends, employers, and governments don't understand. She will share how the vision of The Resilient Activist was first ignited in 2003 as Sammy struggled to find some meaning from the suicide of her older son, Kevin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a little bit. But I wanna tell you a little bit more about Sammy. She is a retired software developer. Uh, she's a meditation and yoga teacher. She's an extension master naturalist, which I'm not sure what that is, and hopefully she'll explain that to us. But I think that one of the things that um, in talking with her, that I wanted to have her on the program, is that she's really living consciously and trying to create a community that nurtures, uplifts, and supports those who strive to live in conscious harmony with the earth. And oh my goodness, do we need this more than ever in this moment in our history? And so with that, I wanna welcome you, Sammy. And as we're getting started, is there anything particular on your mind um, that you would like to share with my, with my um, audience before we get to the kind of the questions that we prepared? Oh my gosh, you touched on some just really heavy, heartfelt um, emotions talking about what's happening in the world today. And um, I just share your putting out your heart to those that are suffering and um, to know that it is happening all over and there's a global community and there's a global community of people working towards um, finding resilience and finding joy and finding ways to recover and rebound after these difficult situations happen. And so I'm, I'm grateful for what you do with your organization and uh, the opportunity to be able to speak a little bit about our perspective, our, our kind of narrow perspective on what we're doing also. Well, and you know, on my show, we have had um, Bob Doppelt, for example, who is kind of the person who created the International Transformation Resilience Coalition, which is a group of mental health professionals and public health professionals from all over the world that are really um, looking at how, what is the mental health toll to the climate events that happen. But I, 
when talking with you, you've really gone uh, you know, kind of even to additional steps about prevention, which I think are so essential. But I'm wondering if you could maybe start out by sharing with us how your lived experience inspired you to create the work that you're clearly so passionate about in the work. And I know from talking to you, it has to do with your beloved son, Kevin. But anything else also you want to say about Kevin and, and that those beginnings and the other elements that have really brought you to us today to talk about this passion? Sure. So... He's been gone almost 20 years now, and as an environmental activist himself, he was actually at school in California um, working on his master's in urban and regional planning. He was in a joint law program and had undergraduate degrees in environmental studies and sociology. And there was just this component that the more he understood about the complexities, how um, global and pervasive environmental injustices are, um, the political systems and social systems that have developed with humanity over the eons, really, um, the less he felt like he was going to make any difference. And, um, you know, I think that what I've learned, the, the environmental social justice activists that I've gotten to know over the years are all very sensitive, kind, caring souls. Like that's many of them get into that field because there's something they love, something that is threatened or worrisome and their heart just kind of goes into it. And there's that, that whole component of uh, identifying with their jobs, with their role as, you know, maybe really active uh, volunteers and they carry this. It's not just a day job, you know, where it's not just to get income. And so, uh, the people that are involved in these movements are involved in for more than just the paycheck. And I think that's where the emotional component really takes a toll when they identify with it. And there are so many setbacks and so many uh, frustrations and f- over so many years, right? So many people have been really working to try and affect change for a long time, um, So I think that I also see in our young people right now that there is that same sort of um, passion that um, that may that almost that that the climate change events and protecting our environment is part of their ethos. It's like, okay, maybe I go to um, a service for my religious worship and I'm involved in doing something that is about protecting our planet. Maybe it's because I I have a compost or maybe it's because I have a Prius, I'm not to say, or an, a, an electric car that doesn't, is not harming the environment as the ones that are running on gasoline, as we know. So it's almost like becoming an ethos as part of them. So, you know, I guess I was thinking about after we spoke, it's not it's not only about the activists that we all know, but it's also about people that care deeply about the planet and they are sensitive souls as well. And that's why I was so intrigued by the kind of 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 offerings that your organization that you founded is wanting to bring to the world. So what yeah, what's really an important point that you make is that we, I would use the word a mindful way of living, right? For you using the word ethos, it's everything I touch, I pick up, I'm going to purchase, where I'm going to go, how I'm going to get there. It's just part of how I live. 
in how does this impact the well-being of the planet, right? And, and we have some teachings about that and workshops that we do. That's what it's going to take, really, the tipping point. And I know we're, we're kind of heading way past the initial questions here. <laughs> no, but I think this is what happens, right? Because we're seeing that, that it's about all of us coming together and how we, as one common humanity, um, regardless of where we live on the planet, can really be thoughtful and mindful about how we care for the planet. Yes, and so I'll, I'll just give you a little short anecdote. Um, I have a, a friend who is the director of um, the Office of Victim Services for the Kansas Department of Corrections. And they were having a meeting of their staff. This was before COVID. They were all in person and, you know, they're all social worker types, right? So they're all really kind, giving, nurturing souls. They had a great meeting talking about the the secondary trauma they experience with the clients they work with and so on. And they get up from the meeting and one of their staff members stands up and says, this was such a great meeting. And why are there styrofoam cups and plates all over the table? So, you know, these, it was like my friend realized that her staff who are not environmental activists, right? but they're carrying this weight. They're carrying the way they want to live and be on the planet with them in every minute of their lives. And, and to be frank, that's what this is gonna cause the tipping point, right? When more and more of us really get it and find the way to speak our truth about it. So I'm yeah. wondering as you've told us this one experience that you've had, if there are other experiences that you'd like to share with us about being, I, I love the term environmental activist. Yeah. So let me go back to the extension master naturalist to give you kind of a sense for that. So a lot of communities, uh, especially the extension offices, the state uh, extension universities, usually dealing with agriculture, have master gardeners programs, right? Where um, citizen science, people can go learn how to be gardeners. The master naturalist programs under the same auspices of the universities, but it's for focusing on ecosystems. It's focusing not just on plants for humans, right? Cause that's a master gardeners, uh, whether it's for your gardens or for your uh, food crops, but the master naturalists work with understanding um, plant life, wildlife, water quality, air quality, um, and, and everything related to that. So it, it comes from, again, this perspective of seeing a bigger picture, not staying in the silo of one thing. And so my particular background is um, I've really got involved in putting in pollinator habitat. But at the time when I first started, I was putting in the way I would describe it is I was putting in native plants in order to help with erosion control, uh, filter chemicals, because at the time I was still putting chemicals on my lawn, um, flooding, all the native plants have really deep roots. And so there's all these other benefits. And I started teaching workshops. There was federal money available for people to be able to put in their native gardens from the public works department. Um, and there was money for, to, to reimburse people for their gardens. And so I started teaching people workshops and how to do this. And one of the things I taught was 
how to, uh, what to do with your leaves when they fall down, right? Midwest here, especially, we have a lot of leaves in our yards in the fall. And I was taught and I taught people to mow those leaves a couple times so they're smaller and then put them around your shrubbery. And it wasn't until I got into the Master Naturalist program that I learned that uh, I was planting not native gardens necessarily only, but I was planting pollinator habitat. And there are thousands of species of insects that lay their eggs in those leaves and they overwinter and they don't emerge until later in the season. And so by teaching people to, um, to mow those up, basically you're killing that entire season's worth of insects that are overwintering. And so, you know, my favorite insect is the Luna moth. It's about four inches long and it's soft green and this really long tail and it looks like a fairy when it flies. And a luna moth lays its eggs on leaves of a bunch of different trees, a bunch of, you know, oaks and maples. And the eggs mature, drop down, the, uh, the chrysalis is there over winter, and then they emerge when the season warms up the next spring. And, and so that's a part of the more we know, that's my motto, the more I know, the more I know I don't know, right? And so here I was carrying the guilt, which is another component of this, doing my best, thinking I was doing the right thing, but not having enough information to understand how many insects I was having my husband mow up every year, right? And that's another component is the eco guilt. Um, and the more that people understand about how they've been living and even what they've been taught by respected communities, people, right? And learning that those people didn't have all the information either. They were taught what they were taught and we're coming into a different way of perceiving life and especially all life on the planet and living from that perspective rather than just from what we've been taught. Well, and just when you talk about this particular, how intricate the systems over the ages have developed, right? That when the leaves fell and the chrysalises have time to be quiet there during the cold months and then to come out. And then when the moths do come out, what is what is their function in nature? What do they do for? Yeah, yeah. that is the best question because it's that whole cradle to cradle thing. Let's go full circle. So if you have a, a chickadees, I think most people in the States, the Carolina chickadees are, are, uh, live there. One nest full of chickadees, which could be four to six eggs, you know, little tiny black and white birds, in order to fledge that one nest full, so to, from egg to the birds are flying off, it takes six to 8,000 insects, especially caterpillars, for those birds to eat to feed the insects, to feed their young. So even though the adult chickadees eat bird seed, or they eat seed rather, we call it bird seed, but they eat seed, they feed caterpillars to their young because they're higher in protein. And so when we don't have all these insects in our yards, then we're not gonna have as many birds because they can't raise their young. Oh so it's this whole, it's the cycle that I, you know, as a grown woman, I was in my 60s when I went to the Master Naturalist training. I'm a really intelligent person, right? I'm well-educated. I didn't know any of this stuff. And 
it's just it's an eye opener to recognize how differently we could be living on the planet. It's almost like we've taken for granted, oh, that mm-hmm. these are just that we became so independent in our thinking, oh, I have a backyard. I don't want to see the leaves, so I'll just rake them up. When we find that there are reasons why they fell in the way that they did that has to do with the complete cycle of life. Exactly. Oh my goodness. So exactly. Yeah. So then, and then you talked about something and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, and that you talked about the guilt, like going, Oh no, all those, those insects mm-hmm. that didn't get to be caterpillars that the birds couldn't feed to their young. You know, I could see where that, where that can happen, that cascade of different feelings. So could you maybe share what kind of emotions that you have observed in people in your work regarding the, um, you know, just what we're talking about in other areas, you know, obviously your son felt a lot of despair for him to get to the point where he thought it would be better not to be here than to be here. Absolutely. Eco-anxiety is one of the new words. There's an entire lexicon of new words in the mental health community for the emotions related to climate change, environmental destruction. Eco-anxiety has to do with people who are hearing the news. Um, Maybe they're experiencing experiencing, uh, severe weather events, maybe more often severe weather events than they've had before, whether it's five severe hurricanes in Florida in one season, or I don't know, haven't you had a little water in California the last couple of weeks? It's been horrible. The flooding has been terrible, and we've been in a drought, and that's exactly like the extreme of that, and now it's like Mm -hmm. too much water. Yeah. And so the anxiety of learning enough to know that this could happen where I am, or I'm in the middle of it, or we experienced that last year, is it going to happen again this year? So this anxiety, worrying about severe weather events, there's a lot of people worried about their children and grandchildren. Are they going to be able to have the same places and experiences in nature that they had growing up? even for especially for people in the inner city areas where we have urban heat islands where the temperature can be 10 or 15 degrees higher than in the suburbs around the same city because there's no tree cover uh cement actually continues to radiate heat and carbon uh it's very complicated but there's people that don't want their kids to play outside and they can't play outside increased incidences of asthma and other respiratory illnesses right And then there's a whole movement of people, young people, who are trying to decide whether they're going to have children or not. And there's um, a subsection, there are a couple of new mental health organizations. One is the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. One is the Climate Psychology Alliance. And there are members of those organizations, they call themselves climate-aware therapists, um, who are focusing on helping young couples or young individuals decide whether they will have children because it's it's a it's a huge aspect of that anxiety and then anger is a big one uh, we did a research study for climate activists <clears throat> pardon me about the emotional impact of being an activist and anger was right up there with sadness anger about what's happening with your legislators with elected officials with when you just think you're making some headway uh, with a particular regulation, and then that person either doesn't get reelected or their funding is cut, right? And so there's this constant 
back and forth, this whiplash effect. And uh, the same thing happens with corporations, although a lot of corporations are shifting towards things like benefit corporations and conscious capitalism. These are organizations to help businesses become more sustainable and more um, more environmentally and aware and more philanthropic and so on. But there's this whole anger that can build up with people who've been working at this, especially for 20, 30, 40 years, and still feeling like they're not making any progress. Yeah. And then sadness, grief and worry, it's, those are big. Um, grief, especially people looking at uh, places in nature that they love, even extinction of certain animals that they see. Uh, one of the new words is so, solastalgia, which is pining. Solastalgia. Yeah, S-O-L-A-S-T-A-L-G-I-A, pining for a lost environment. And that came from when uh, people were returning to the Gulf Coast um, after Hurricane Katrina. And yes, they were in grief and sadness and loss about losing their homes, their loved ones, maybe their their health, uh, financial issues, their jobs. And and there was this extra component that they had lost places in nature that they loved, where they found solace, their favorite trees, their favorite wetlands. And so uh, well, it's a whole also, I, need to, I have to yeah. mention here because we have done some work I've had people on my show from indigenous nations throughout the U S and Canada, and that there's been so much grief that they've experienced, not just recently, but for many decades, generations, yeah. generations regarding the change in what has happened um, when Westerners came to this land and didn't appreciate the cycle as you're talking about that they lived with this earth for a long time and didn't cause damage to it. So I just wanna make sure that I, that those of you who may be from indig indigenous uh, nations that we're respecting that that um, pain and suffering has been there for, for many generations, as you say, Sammy. It is, and you know, it's so, I'm not sure, disheartening, the opposite of that, heartening is that word? <laughs> Um, for us to be working with some indigenous communities, we're here in Kansas City, we have the Haskell Indian Nations University, um, which is, well, I won't go into the whole deal, but it's a four-year college for indigenous people. And we've been able to do a lot of joint programming with them, learning from them what they know and how they maintain their resilience. A big part of that really is that everyday spiritual, physical, emotional, mental connection to the earth, right? It's where we notice in every moment, not just the weather or the season, but we but those are part of it. And we we kind of fit our our human perspectives, our human lives into being with the planet, with the soil, with the water, with the plants, with the seasons. And um, it's an, it's a new way of living and oh my gosh, I was looking at my library of all the teachings that we get from all these indigenous cultures, both locally and globally. Yes. There's, there's so much that we didn't, that those who came from Europe, they didn't know either, right? Yeah. They didn't have that back in the day. Uh, you know, it was a whole, 
a whole different cultural perspective. And again, are people that just weren't taught. They didn't, they didn't know. So well, it's like what yeah. you were saying about your leaves. You didn't know what you didn't know. Exactly. And, and being respectful. And now if we can go back and to have a deep listen to um, our individuals from indigenous natures, I think there are nations, there's so much that we can learn. But I also, I wanted to segue into another thing I wanted to talk to you about. And that was, um, is that, um, you know, we have, have had different uh, political things happen in the last number of years. And when we left the peace accords, that was very, very difficult for many people mm -hmm. who had been um, climate activists. And I, I was up in, I remember I was up in Oregon, I was talking to a group of people, scientists who literally knew the science, had spent their life with the science. And I, and also they were kind of scientific type not necessarily prone to, oh, how, how are you feeling about this, right? It's like the, mm -hmm. the emotional part of it, maybe, could I say, was underdeveloped? I don't want to say anything disparaging of them, but it was more or less like there was so much suffering that they didn't know. And one woman said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, I just feel like the last 30 years of my life is going up in smoke, mm -hmm. that it's not being embraced of what we know is true. And that comes from the climate change deniers. And how does that impact the emotions of people like yourself who understand the implications? Yeah, so I can't remember the number. I think it's uh, HR 816, but don't quote me on that. Uh, it was a house bill put out in February of 2016. So you guys can figure out the math to what that meant. And it was to eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, I graduated high school in 1970. That was the year the EPA was founded. And my whole life was like, they have my back. Are they perfect? No, right? But at least it's a way, a legal way for corporations, manufacturing sites, whatever, to be held accountable for the damage that they do. And I always trusted, relied on that. And the day that came out, I just... I was beside myself. This was uh, before the resilient activists. We didn't start until 2018. And I found myself, I had worked with my native pollinator habitats at a um, restored Superfund site that is now poll restored pollinator gardens. And I headed out there. I needed to be where the destruction had been, right? Where the EPA had been really, they're supposed to regulate that and monitor the groundwater in perpetuity. Like that was the whole deal when they did the cleanup. And I just, it was one of the most grievous days I've had um, because what do you do and where do you go? And, you know, all I could think of was, we don't need no stinking badgers. Like, it's <laughs> like, we don't need the government. You know, we can be the people, we can be individuals who take action. Everybody who puts in native pollinator habitat in their yard, they're making a political statement. Well, they're so making things, a big I difference. really, I would really yeah. want to talk more about this, about how sure. we can, even when there may be questionable pieces of legislation that get passed, how we can rise up to protect this beautiful earth of ours. So we're gonna take a short break, Sammy. Okay. And when we come back, I wanna continue this conversation. Um, 
but we still have an environmental protection agency. It didn't go away. Yes, so we will talk do. more about that yes. when we come back. Because I just want, in case anybody had to leave, it's still in existence. It's so, still there and operating. So yeah. We will be back in just a few minutes and we will continue this dynamic conversation with Sammy Aaron from The Resilient Activist. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Sammy Aaron from The Resilient Activist. We're going to continue the conversation that we had um, uh, before the break, but I also want to just do a shout out to the Trauma Resource Institute, um, www.traumaresourceinstitute.com. I'm going to say it again. Um, They are a nonprofit. They always um, appreciate donations to do their international work. And as I mentioned, they're a founding member of the International Transformation Coalition, and they have been involved in the mental health um, issues sur- surrounding climate issues. So um, please take a look at their website and and help support them. And so now I'm going to circle back to Sammy. And Sammy, we were talking about the emotions. And thank you for sharing your emotions that happened when you saw that piece of legislation. So I guess that piece of legislation didn't pass because the 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 uh, the protection agency is still there. The EPA. It's still there. 
1,600 Environmental Protection Agency staff walked out. They quit their jobs. And so that's another big component for the resilient activists. One of our taglines is, we know the world needs inspired and visionary activists who have the resilience to see us through these difficult times. So by disabling, you know, all of this expertise that left the EPA when we need that expertise to be in there. We need, you know, a friend of mine was an EPA uh, attorney her whole career. She's just retired and she spent the whole time on a cleanup of a mine down in southern Missouri and in Arkansas. Her entire career because it takes forever to clean these sites up. And so what we really need is to find the way to support and uplift the people that have the expertise and the background and the contacts and the research. Um, so it's it's really important work. Yeah. So when we talk about the, the, the terms resilient activists and, you know, that this is called resiliency within. And I've had many people on the show where we've unpacked the word resiliency because for some people, they don't look at it as a positive word because they look at it more that people have used that way to disempower them for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But there are other people like myself that say, well, that may be true, but we also want to see if there are there some components that we can pull out of it. Um, I kind I like the word, but I don't like that it's been used as a weapon towards someone, of course. But I've come to to the terms of it meaning that we show up with compassion and we show up with empathy. We show up with acknowledging the suffering like we're doing right now, but also acknowledging that there's also strength that we can remember. And that's what I'm hearing you say about, well, what can I do as an individual or a community of people to even if a government says this, that we can say something else. And also I believe that that this is embodied, can be embodied well-being. Mm-hmm. And that can come from yoga, from meditation, from the skills of the community resiliency model and other kinds of Tai Chi, the different kinds of movements that help us as embodied individuals show up as our best self. So as, as I'm talking about these things, I would love to hear what your definition is, not only of resilient, but also activist. So sure. over to you, Sammy, because I'm very <laughs> what you have so, to say about this. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when the word sustainability was the word, everything was, should be sustainable. And it turns out that sustainable sounds like status quo, meaning keep it just like it is like, you know, let's don't really make major changes. And so now the new word is regenerative. You know, there's, there's a shift and I get that. And again, it's more people knowing more things, understanding more about the issues. And so that, that change in, in wording was really important. For us, the definition of activism is the art of taking action to preserve, protect, and restore what we hold dear. Mm, so like sometimes it looks like this angry and frustrated and you know ready to fight and do battle. And sometimes it's just taking action in a way that maintains our well-being so we can be resilient enough to continue to take action. So to me, I'm with you on resilience. To me, resilience is finding the way, mind, body, spirit, that gives me the opportunity to continue what I'm doing. So one of the, and to make a difference. So 
one of our programs that we offer is called the four steps to a resilient life. And it's really simple. It's looking at what are you already doing? What are you already doing that you love? Of those things, which ones do you love to do? And you celebrate that. Which ones don't you love to do, right? I got three columns going here. That's where my hands are going. I got three columns. Which ones don't you love to do and why not? What is it about them that clutches you in the throat, that you can't speak well, you're up all night, you're angry and frustrated in fight or flight mode? And then the last step, the fourth step is what can you do about each one of those? So with a mindfulness practice, with deep nature connection, you can find the way to refine, redesign, reimagine what you've been doing so that there is a way that it either can go back in that column that you love doing it or you quit doing that thing because there's a million people out there working on every aspect of everything that needs to be done on this earth today. You don't have to be the one doing it all. So to me, the word resilient is positive and uplifting. It's what I want. I what I want for myself and what I want for every activist who is taking action to preserve, protect, and restore what I hold dear. Preserve, so those are my protect, definitions. and restore, restore what you hold dear. And wow. I mean, that opens up the entire world, right? Doesn't you know, I, it? My granddaughter, and how can I protect, preserve, and restore this parts of the earth that I may have some ability to touch yeah. that may improve her life as right. she's growing on this planet. So I think that's a very optimistic perspective, Sammy. And, you know, because there can be, when we see things that are happening, like that legislation that thank goodness didn't pass, that we can we can lose our, oh my goodness, what is happening in the world? Mm -hmm. But then let's say that that should happen again. You, you Before the break, you said, but we could do something. You said, I could do something. So there's your your resilient, opti maybe, the, maybe the resilient optimist might be the next one. You know, I think you might. <laughs> we'll start that together, Sammy. We actually graduated from high school the same year, by the oh, way. Oh, did we? Yes. Cool. Yes. So, yeah, the resilient, yes, the resilient optimist. optimist. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So we just created something here. So yeah. can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think that would be important because sometimes life doesn't go our way. Sometimes there are the things that even though we've worked really hard for it, it it's just not going the way that we hoped. What can we do you know, then? Obviously, there's this serenity prayer, right? There's things that we just can't change. So what, one of the things with environmental activists, and I'll stick with people working in land use because I, I'm those people. I know those people. When I walk out of my house every single day, and I get in my car and drive down my street and I see only mowed grass and one tree, maybe two in the yard and the exact same uh, Stella Dior day lilies and um, whatever those roses are that bloom all the time. I forget what they're called. It's the exact same flowers that have no benefit for any pollinators. In fact, they're actually hybridized to not even have nectar and pollen. Right. Hmm. And I see that every single minute of every single day. There is this, it's this embodied awareness that I carry that helps remind me that all I can do is teach one person at a time by doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I just had a nephew tell me, he was here visiting a few weeks ago, and we were on the phone and he said, you know, I saw something you did that I thought was just really cool, that instead of putting saran wrap over your half an apple, 
you turned it upside down on a plate to put in the refrigerator. And it was like, I didn't teach him that. He observed it by my living, by my living in the way I understand today, which is going to evolve, I know, right? But by my living from that place, it's going to change. So, so let me talk about corporations and legislators and um, all of our elected officials and those people. Let's talk about those people, right? Those people are who I was the day before I got it. So the day I got it was I was down in a place called the Flint Hills in Kansas, the last remnant of tall grass prairie, like it's the coolest place ever. And I drove home about two hours on the highway and I didn't have to clean one dead insect off my windshield. So when I was a kid growing up, we would have to stop at a gas station to clean the dead bugs off our windshields because we couldn't see out, right? Even if we didn't need gas, even when our, our cars were getting eight, nine gallons, I, I miles to the gallon, that. right? We, we would go remember from that? California to the Grand Canyon and we'd have to stop because of all the exactly. insects on the... Yes, exactly. That was my turning point. I got it that day. I'm like, there's a, there's a problem here, right? All these people who don't get it yet that I could be angry at, I could sue, I could, I mean, there's uh, Terra Fury, there's this whole new word about violence related to climate change, right? Um, there's this perception that they are me the day before I got it, that's it. Now that I get it, it's simply my role to live from that perspective. And the other thing is, I think I might be wrong, but I think everyone who works in a corporation, everyone who's a shareholder in a corporation, I think everyone who's a legislator, I think they're all human beings, right? I think they're people. And I think that they have significant others and children going to school. They have, it's going to take individual people getting it because then those are the people who are gonna be able to make legislative changes and corporate changes. Because then you're talking about, I think what I so totally wholeheartedly believe to my toes is compassion. You Compassion bet. for those who don't know, as wow. well as for those who know, because if we decide to put them as, like you say, those people, then we dehumanize them for having the capacity to learn something differently. And I'm going to add to that. That's exactly, exactly, you stated exactly. But also, if I stay at war with those people, if I'm right and they are wrong and I have to prove to them through the legal systems, through protesting, through it, I'm not saying those are negative. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those. But if that's the only message they're getting, people who are being yelled at can't hear you. And so you might win a battle now and again but the war is gonna go on. And the only way true resilience is gonna happen, true restoration, true regeneration, is when people get it and they begin to live from it. And it's only gonna happen one person at a time saying, you know what, today I'm gonna to quit using saran wrap on my apples. Well, you just taught me something new. I'm gonna do that next time. 
I'm cool. Like, I'll just get a little plate and put it on. Then I don't have to put surround wrap, wrap on. You have it. to cut it really smoothly and okay. it doesn't work as well with avocados. You have to take the seed out, but it's a whole, you know, any piece of fruit that's got a hard, that's got, what do we call it? Skin, right? Like right. they came that way with this great protective skin. Let's use that. So, well, so let me, I would like to kind of get to my next question that I'd like to talk to you about because you not only walk the walk, the walk, talk the talk about um, being a resilient activist, but it is important that we know that what we're doing is on the right track. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of the research studies that you have um, been involved with through the resilient activist and how was it created and and what what are some of the results? What are the questions that you you formulated and what are some of the results of um, your studies? Sure. So the resilient activist was founded really to support those working in climate and all, in all environmental fields, which overlaps 100% with all social justice issues, right? So one of the first studies we did was, um, or the first one we did was right after COVID started, it was September of COVID year, um, and we did a focus group. We had, um, I think it was about 46 climate activists who identified really highly on the scale as activists and it was Zoom meetings. Most people were from the Midwest, but we had people from around the world actually um, participating. And um, we were working with the Kansas University Department of Psychology. Um, and, and the study was really what emotions come up when you think about your activism. And we had some specific questions for that. And what we found was people were, A, really happy to talk about it. And some of the comments people made were, I can't believe I, can I can't talk about this at work. Like, this is so, like, such a relief for me to be in a, a community where I can really express what I'm feeling. And we found that this level of sadness and anger were really high. Whereas with other studies, uh, there was a big one done, climate anxiety, about 10,000 young people it was more anxiety and then sadness and anger. So the people who've been at it don't have much anxiety because they're, they know what's happening. You know, they're, they're more, I guess, pragmatic. Um, so that was the first study that we did. And we took that and followed up a little bit with another, just a survey study of people who either had attended or had never attended any of our programs. So we had some that were nature connected gatherings. We had uh, some mental health professionals on Zoom calls and videos. We had, um, uh, we had some artists. We had, you know, it's kind of anything, you know, kind of running the gamut. And this study showed that people who had attended, people, activists who had attended any one of our programs, and it didn't matter whether it was in person or it was on Zoom, they experienced a higher level of emotional well-being just by being in community. So that whole piece about getting with people that get it, right? So many people experience discord at home. Their family doesn't get it. They're, you know, there's eye rolling. I know I went through that for a lot of years with holidays. What do you mean we're not going to use paper plates? Are you going to stand there and wash all the dishes? Yeah, I am, you know, and this whole, it, it impacts everything when, when we first start to step into that. We just did a study this summer. 
It was a nine-week mindfulness resilience training that we did, um, nine weeks, an hour and a half each, each of the nights, and with a psychologist from Kansas City University, which is the osteopathic medical school. And the results on that, we, we uh, graded on some cognitive flexibility studies and found a significant statistical increase in cognitive flexibility. And these are things like having specific tools. I know what to do when I'm, um, I need help. Like we had a template for reaching out for help letter template. And we had um, what to do when you're really in fight or flight mode, when you're really angry and stressed and upset. Very simple tools along with teaching, meditation, guided relaxation, breathing techniques, and then incorporating, the, incorporating that with conversation on things like moral injury. So moral injury is this term where you're in a situation that you understand harm is being caused and maybe your job is causing that harm or maybe your employer or maybe your government or maybe your homes association or maybe your neighbor, right? And how do you live with this? How do you carry this moral injury about things over which you have no control? How do you find that um, equanimity with it? And of course, the meditation teacher in me says, well, meditation's one way, right? But another way is to recognize if we're talking about our four steps for a resilient life, that's one thing you can't do anything about. So get rid of it. You can't, all you can do is live your life, do that thing in the way that feels right for you and go to the other gazillion things you could be working on. And that, that pendulum between, I was talking about, about my definition of resilience about, yes, there's the suffering, but then there's something else that can happen too. You know, exactly. what else is true and what else is true is that you can work on these things, knowing those are things that you can't change. But I think what's important is looking at it with equanimity because I think if we don't, the the word that you use is kind of like, what is it? Echo fury? Is that the word that you use? Uh, uh, terra fury. Oh, terra fury. Oh, that, that echo fury might be something too. We're creating That's a good today, one. right? But <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that those kinds of things, if you're not within your zone of well-being, we call it the resilient zone in the work that we do through the Trauma Resource Institute, that if you get into that high zone or the low zone, low zone is inaction and high zone is anger and terror and People don't listen to people that are in those right. states because that triggers the human response of fight and flight and saying, oh, that person's scary, rather than, oh, if I'm in my zone and saying, well, what if we start thinking about, is there something else can, that we can do with those leaves on the lawn? Yeah. And let me tell you why. Yeah. And that might completely change that everyone has lovely leaves on the lawn now because we know that the caterpillars are not going to be given to the baby birds and we won't have birds, right? I mean, exactly. it's like what you're saying is helping us to know what we don't know in order to enhance the greater good for all of us. I mean, that to me seems to be a core of the work that you're doing, Sammy, and bringing in these well-being mm -hmm. skills is essential. Yeah. You know, and that whole Terra Fury, so Terra being the earth, right? Um, recently, there have been some activist groups in Europe throwing cans of soup at, you know, famous paintings, 
you heard oh, about that? No, yeah. I didn't so, like that, so the paintings are covered in glass and there are, you know, there wasn't any real damage done. There are people, um, you know, high level, high intensity activists gluing themselves, their skin to the windows of bank buildings. And, you know, there's people immolating themselves, like just that some people get to that point where they're, they feel there's nothing else to be done but get violent. How do I get someone else's attention, right? You just want to grab people and just smack them and like, can't you, can't you see what's going on? And, and that's going to happen more and more, especially as more and more people are experiencing severe weather events, higher temperatures. Um, you know, it was like some of the heat that we had in, in Europe last summer. I mean, when you have wildfires in uh, Siberia in, you know, in the winter, something's wrong, right? And so and there's no snow right now in the Swiss Alps. I read that this morning. Yeah. Right? How can that be? Yeah. Right? How can that be? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I kind of want to segue back to um, kind of the time has gone by so quickly, Sammy. I want to, I want to circle back to the violence that can happen towards others, but also the suffering that can happen kind of bringing Kevin back into the um, conversation, because I think what I've heard from you today is that you're really trying to prevent any other persons that have the sensitivity that your son had from ever doing anything that ends their life because there might be another road. Do I have that right? Yeah, that was really the impetus for the resilient activist. What might have helped? What, you know, what, what did we not have as parents? We didn't have the understanding, had no clue what he was going through mentally. And, um, and then the mental health community didn't have it either, right? They were they were clueless back then. Fortunately, now that's that's not the case. There's a lot of mental health professionals. So you know, I think this teaching people, especially young people, um, resilient skills. How do you how how do you carry grief and hope at the same time? How can you how can you live like that? How can you carry anger and joy? And, I, and it's a it's a practice. It's a yeah. practice and a process. So and a process, if yeah. there, I'm sure there are people saying, I want to, I want to take some of these offerings from the resilient activists. So can you tell us your website? How can people get a hold of you as we're as we're coming to a close today? Sure, just the resilientactivist.org. Uh, we have a climate cafe tomorrow night, Tuesday night, six o'clock uh, central time on Zoom. It's free and it's a place to just every month we have a different topic and it's conversation. It's being in community. Uh, we have an event page, you know, to see what else we have coming up. But uh, that's kind of the next one. And to get on our email list. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Sammy, for coming on board with us today. And I hope everybody goes to the Resilient Activists and learns about your organization. And Kevin will always be in my heart seeing what a wonderful mother you are and how you're bringing his great passion to the world through the resilient activist. And I want to say to my guests to remember what else is true. And you know, this show is all about what Sammy has shared with us today and that some of you may be suffering right now, but maybe if you can take a moment and think about, is there something, a beautiful place in nature, a person who's loved me or that I've loved, or some way where you can pull out one of your gratitudes that might sustain you and maybe reach out to your community. As we've heard today, that's a very important part 
of what helps us stay together. And sometimes when we're lonely, we may not feel that we have one, but you could go to a meeting very soon at the Resilient Activist and be with other people that are like-minded. So until we meet again, this is Elaine miller Care is signing off for Resiliency Within. Um, please have a blessed week and we will see you next time, next Monday. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.